If you live long enough, every one of you will experience grief. I don't mean grief in the hardship of life. I don't mean grief in pain and struggle. I mean grief over the loss of loved ones. If you live long enough, every one of you will mourn the death of someone else. You've heard it said, death comes to us all. And it does. But the reality is, death comes to others first. We first experience death secondhand more often than we experience it first, firsthand. Death usually comes to our neighbors, or maybe it comes to our friends, our family members, those closest, those most dear to us. And in those times, we grieve, we, we agonize, we're, we despair at times because there's something in us that says, you know what, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way that things are supposed to work out. Grief is a natural thing. And I can guarantee you this. You will never experience more grief in life than when you lose those who are dearest to you. There's no grief greater than that. As Christians... We shouldn't be surprised by grief as though we should somehow be immune to it. Grief is a natural thing. Again, it comes back to we know within us that this is not the way it is. But in reality, we live in a world of death. Death is all around us. It happens daily. And we can either make ourselves immune to it, which often we do because we don't want the pain, or we can grieve, often in despair. But there's a difference for Christians when they grieve. It's not as though we don't experience grief over loss. It's that we experience it in a different way. Grief, Death has emotional sting. It should cause sorrow in us. But not as though it's, it's not done in a way that is hopeless. We don't grieve as those with no hope. We don't grieve with those as those who despair. We can grieve as those who have hope. This morning we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And we'll see that oh, this passage is often abused. It's not a passage foretelling the exact details of Christ's return. It's a message of pastoral care for those who are grieving the loss of their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a means of comfort. It's a means of helping them grieve with hope, to experience grief without despair. This freedom begins with theological truth, which informs and guides our emotions. In this passage, Paul instructs us to hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to anticipate the Lord's return. And because these theological truths are real, they will happen. We should encourage one another with these words. So turn with me in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, we're looking at verses 13 through 18. Now we have few Bibles. I need to start telling you what page number it's in, but I haven't got that far yet. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. 
Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Hope in the midst of grief comes from a firm hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul is dealing with the despair that some of the Thessalonians are experiencing. They've had brothers and sisters who have died. And they're beginning to wonder, is Christ coming back? Is the resurrection a real thing? And so these theological truths that they once held to firmly are now beginning to falter. They're beginning to wonder. They're beginning to question. And so Paul's concern is pastoral. He wants them to grieve as those who have hope. We're not exactly sure what the nature of their doubt is. It's it's really unclear. There are a few possibilities. It's possible that they were doubting the resurrection um, of the dead, believing instead that those only those who were alive when Christ returned would get to be with Christ. So if you died before Christ came back, then that's it. You're just in the grave. Only those who are alive when Christ came back, which they thought was immediate, would have hope, would would be able to be with Christ. It could be that they were thinking that the resurrection of the dead would indeed occur after Christ's return, but sometime later. And so these who were in the grave would miss out on the significance of Christ coming back. They wouldn't get to see Christ's triumphant return as the reigning and righteous King. They would miss out on the parousia, the second coming, this glorious event where Christ reveals Himself as Lord and Savior. And so they were lamenting that. They believed that their friends would indeed be raised, but it would be sometime later. And they would miss out on this thing. It could be that some believe that the resurrection and Christ's return had already happened somehow spiritually or figuratively. Christ had already returned. The the resurrection was a spiritual thing that happens in your heart. And so there is no real physical bodily return of Christ. There is no physical resurrection. This is all there is. It's a despairing thought in and of itself. But this is all there is. This is as good as it gets. Or it could be that they were afraid that they would never see their brothers and sisters in Christ again. So they were grieving the loss of the fellowship that they had with them. They were grieving like those who had no hope, that they would never see their loved ones again. It doesn't really matter why specifically they doubt, why they're questioning, why they are grieving as those with no hope. A quick study of Christian history will tell you that throughout the centuries, 
Somebody has fallen into this camp. Somebody has grieved in every one of these ways. Whether, whether they were questioning the resurrection of the dead or the timing or physical nature of Christ's return or whether or not they would see their loved ones again. Christians throughout history have struggled with this, but Paul's answer to each one of those doubts, each one of those questions is the same. And he says that true comfort comes from affirming God's truth. True comfort, true emotional comfort comes through affirming God's truth. This is a big deal. So as he says in verse 13, he does not want them to be uninformed as those who, about those who are asleep, that they may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He does not want them to be ignorant. He does not want them to be unaware. He does not want them to be uninformed about those who have died. It's not that their souls are somehow asleep. Like when they die, they kind of cease to exist for a while until Christ comes back. There's, the Scripture is clear throughout that when you die, your soul immediately goes to be with Christ or your eternal destination, if it's somewhere else other than there, until the time in which your body and soul can be rejoined again. So it's not that they just cease to exist. Their bodies are asleep, destined to be awakened once more, to be reunited with their souls one day when Christ returns. And he's telling them this not so that they would not experience grief, but so they would not experience grief as those who have no hope. And so what is that hope? He says in verse 14, that hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 14 that, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Paul says we can have hope even in our grief over those who have died because God will bring them with the resurrected Christ. They will come with Him. We can wait in eager expectation because Jesus' death and resurrection guarantees the resurrection and reconciliation of all who believe in Him. It's given to everyone who trusts in Christ. This life is not all there is. They're not gone forever. They're not subjects of a pitiful, short, and tragic life. It is so sad when you go to funerals these days and they focus so much on what this person wasn't able to do, what this person wasn't able to accomplish. Oh, it's so tragic. They died so young. They left their family behind. And I don't say this mockingly. Don't hear me say that. But we focus on all they weren't able to do. And we look at it as, as a reason to anguish, a reason to despair, a reason of heartbreak, that they weren't able to live life to the fullest, that they weren't able to experience everything that this world had to offer, that they had to experience pain, that they had to experience hardship, that they had to do any number of things instead of what we should get to experience in this life. The problem with that is that's grieving with no hope. The problem with that is 
the truth behind it. That's a naturalistic worldview. A worldview that says, this life is all there is. This is all you have. This one life. And if you don't make the most of it now, you're done. But as we as Christians, we don't believe that. We don't believe that that's all there is. So you see, the truth that you believe, even a naturalistic worldview, is informing your emotions. It's informing your response. It's informing your decisions and the way that you live your life. The same is true for a Christian. Hope of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection ought to inform the way we grieve, the way we experience emotions, the way we make decisions, the way we live our lives. We can hope because death is not the end. This temporary, fallen, difficult life is not there is. If it is, man, we have reason to despair, don't we? Because you live, you experience pain and hardship, and then you die. And if you're lucky, you get to live a little bit of the good life. So whether you live for 20 years or whether you live for 100 years, that's pathetically short. That's reason for despair. For those who are in Christ, they are and they will be with Christ. They will be raised physically because Christ was raised physically. We can stand firm on this confidence that we can fervently, joyously, longingly anticipate this truth because Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection is essential. The resurrection is significant. The resurrection is at the core of the gospel. If we do not believe in the resurrection, then we have no gospel. It is essential to the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. There's a number of reasons for this. First, it confirms that God's wrath against sin was satisfied. If Jesus was not raised, then we are still dead in our sin. And friends, we've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. We have all tried to live as if this is our world and we're God. You know how I know this? Simple. I can give you a simple illustration that you're a sinner. What do you do when you get stuck in traffic even when you have nowhere to go? Just kind of twiddle your thumbs, pass the time, pray a lot. No, you get angry. You know, this is, this is just it. We want to live as if we are in control of this world. And when this world doesn't go according to our plan, according to our desires, we get angry and we curse God. We rebel against God in thought, in word, and in attitude. In everything about us, we are rebels. We are constantly bucking against God's good plan. And therefore, because God is a, is a good and holy and perfect God, we place ourselves under His wrath. We have to keep in mind, God created us. God sustains us. God gives us our lives, everything that we have. And when we're, when we shuck that, when we hate that, when we argue against that, we're arguing against God. And this God is holy and perfect and righteous and just. He does not sin in any way. He can have nothing to do with sin. And so if God is going to be good, if God is going to be right, if God is going to be just, He has to punish sin. He can't just overlook it. He can't just wipe it away. He must 
Deal with it. And the reality is, friends, that's all we deserve. That's all I deserve is the wrath of God. The eternal, everlasting wrath of God. Because I've sinned against Him. I've done it willfully. I've done it happily. And I've done it over and over and over again. But fortunately for us, it doesn't end there. It should have, but it didn't. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for you and I. God sent His Son to live the life that we cannot and to give that life up as a substitute for sin. He paid the ransom that sin deserved. And after three days, He rose again to prove that that wrath against God was satisfied. Our hope is in the resurrection. But there's more than that. The resurrection proved that He was indeed the Son of God. I mean, we just sang about how He said that He would die and that He would rise again, and He's alive, right? Jesus said three times. He, he, he predicted His death three times, and that, that on the third day He would rise again. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I will lay down my life and I will take it up again. I have that authority, and I will do it. Only God has the ability to raise people from the dead. And so Jesus, by His own admissions, is making a claim to authority, and He proves it. He proves that He's the Son of God in His rising from the dead. The resurrection guarantees, as this passage says, that those who are asleep will be raised. Not just the righteous, but in John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29, the evil... The wicked, the unrighteous, will also be raised and all will stand before Jesus in judgment. The Jesus resurrection guarantees forth that all will have live eternally. The righteous will be eternally reconciled, living with Christ forever. Those who continue in their rebellion try to live as if this is their world and their God or try to live, uh, try to... to gain their own salvation by their own works, they will spend everlasting eternity in hell under the wrath of God. But all will be raised. All will live eternally. All will stand in judgment. So Christ's resurrection is at the core of the gospel. If there is no resurrection, then there is no gospel. And since Jesus did die and rise again, all hope, all comfort, all eternal joy, all blessed assurance is ours that though we may die, yet we will live with Him. This is hope. This is a glorious hope. Therefore, we can grieve the loss of our brothers and sisters in Christ with hope. We can be rest assured that our bodies will be raised to dwell with Christ. So funerals for believers shouldn't be this whole, oh, I'm so sorry that they didn't get to live their life to the fullest. It should be a joyous celebration that now they are face to face with their eternal King and that they will, again, one day bodily be with their eternal King again. And His resurrection guarantees it. That though there may be tears, there's always hope. So hope, rather than despair, comes first as we trust in the truth of Jesus' resurrection. But second, we have hope even in grief as we anticipate the Lord's return. In verses 15-17, through 17, 
Paul speaks of the physical reunion of Christ with his followers. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Paul's not making a personal declaration here. Paul is not giving his own personal interpretation of Old Testament passages on the return of the Messiah. He is declaring a word from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that he has some sort of special knowledge. This is not just a prophetic utterance that was given after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension that's sort of adding to. He's actually referring back to that instruction, that teaching that was given by the living Christ during his earthly ministry. Sometime between his birth and his ascension, Christ taught on this. And actually, if you look at this passage and you compare it to Matthew 24... It conforms in many, many ways. But if you look at all the Gospels and the verse sliver of Acts before the Ascension, then you can see that all of this is spoken of in the Gospels and in Acts. So this is Christ's instruction. He's just repeating what Christ has said as he was alive with his followers. And he says, we should live Um, in two ways, right? We should eagerly anticipate the coming of Christ. We should live as though it could come at any moment, at any time. We should live with that expectancy, with that hope, without longing. But we should also live in the realization that we may indeed die and be raised. Paul lives with that tension. He recognizes... That Christ himself said only the Father knows the day and the hour. Right? Christ said that what? One, two, three, four, five, five times in the Gospels. Um, we see here in this passage that Paul speaks uh, in one sense as though um, Christ will return while he's alive. In verses 15 and 17, he says that we who are alive will be caught up together with Christ. But the reality is it's been... 2,000 years since he said this, since he wrote this down. Was Paul mistaken? Did he get it wrong? Did did Christ really already return and we somehow missed it? Well, the answer is no. Christ is dealing with this tension between expectation and realization and hoping in both sense. He's holding to these incompatible expectations. One, that Jesus would return in his lifetime, but also that of his own death and resurrection. And we can't, there's no way that we can see this better than in the book of Philippians. You see in Philippians 4, 5 that Paul says that the Lord is near. He expected the Lord to come at any moment. And he said in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, that when Christ comes, Christ will transform his lowly body. He expected his lowly body to be transformed. But then in the opposite end, in chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we know that that famous passage that he said dying is actually gain, that he would rather depart and be with Christ. And then in chapter 3, verses 
10 through 11, he said that his hope is that he might become like Christ in his death so that he might also attain the resurrection of the dead. So Paul holds to these dual expectations, these seemingly incompatible expectations that the Lord could come at any moment, but yet if the Lord tarries, there's still hope because there's always death and resurrection. And so you and I, we must also hold to both. We should live this life in anticipation of Christ's return, expecting it at any moment, being prepared for it, but yet realizing that even if it doesn't, we have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we do, when we catch that, it changes the way we read this passage. This passage is no longer about end times prophecy. It's about readiness. It's about hope. It's about the resurrection. And we need to keep that in mind. It's a call. It, it, it's a, we should read it as hope, which gives comfort, and a call for readiness. And I'm amazed at how often when people look at this passage, they immediately jump to verses 15 through 17. And this is somehow a prediction of the end times. I mean, people are fascinated by this idea of trying to figure out when Jesus is going to return, which is ironic because Jesus said, hey, I don't know. And I think that if Paul knew or the other apostles would have known, they would have clued us in at some point, right? They would have said, hey, you know, it's coming you know, December 21st, 2012, or something like that. But we treat the Bible as some code to decipher, you know, to, to figure out the exact time and the manner of Christ's return. And we view this passage as just one piece in the puzzle that we have to put together so that we can know when Jesus is coming back. I mean, we don't want to miss the rapture, right? Because the tribulation's really going to stink. We don't want to be here for that. So we've got to figure this stuff out. I mean, some people treat this as like a, a means, a, a construction manual for building a Christian bomb shelter. You know? It's like they're busy gathering all their provisions. They've got their food. They've got their water. They've got their Bible. And then they've got their white robes because, you know, when the rapture happens, they'll be naked. They need something to put on that's kind of holy. And so they do that, you know. I mean, the kind of people that go down to their basement, right, and they've got every news channel under the sun piped down into there, like 17 TVs. And they're always looking to kind of make the predictions. They've got the Left Behind series all laid out there. They finished reading them for the 12th time. they got them all dog-eared and, and highlighted and everything. And, and you know, they've, they've completely exhausted Christian, uh, Christian book distributors, resources on the end times. I mean, they've got all 1,700 volumes about end-time prophecy that they're hoping to read sometime between here and the rapture, though I don't really know when that's going to happen because it's going to happen in an instant, you know? I mean, these kind of people, you just... You know, they've they got sky charts, they've got telescopes, they've got eyes on the sky all the time trying to figure out so they can see that exact moment when Christ appears on the clouds. They've got sonar that's specifically attuned to the sound of a trumpet so that when Jimmy down the street practices for his recital, they go running outside and they start jumping up and down on their trampoline so they can meet Jesus in the air. I mean, we can go to extreme extents on this, you know, and I'm being, I'm being silly. I'm being ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm blowing it up because, because I want us to be aware that that's not the intention of this passage. I want to draw us back to reality. So forgive my hyperbole. If you were one of those people who bought 
uh, cruise control when it first came out because you thought, you know what, this is a good thing because when I'm raptured, this, this thing will function as autopilot, you know, and no one will die before the tribulation's over. You know, like, appreciate your heart in that, but I don't mean to uh, be cynical about you. Um, but Paul's intent here is not to give a detailed and specific description on Christ's return, but to provide a general order of things. He does provide a general order of things. So this is not a clues to decipher the end times puzzle, all right? That's not his point. But to give hope and comfort for those who grieve. He's giving them assurance, as he said in verse 15, that those who are alive, who are left at the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those people who they are grieving for. Okay? So we who are alive, when Christ comes back, we won't have it any better off than those who are dead. Okay? They're not going to miss out on some things. Those who are still in the grave, when Christ returns, will not miss out on the significance of His return, that, that parousia, that, that second coming of the triumphant and reigning King. In verses 16 through 17, Paul gives this general eschatological order. Okay? In the first part, in verse 16, Paul says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So event number one in the eschatological order of the end times is that Christ will return. Okay? Step number one. And this will not go unannounced. It won't go unnoticed. You won't sleep through it. It's not as though you're going to come back from the bathroom or come back from vacation and walk into your church and there's a bunch of empty clothes in the church pews. Okay? This will be known. It will be aware. All people will hear. The whole world will hear that Christ has returned. Paul says that it will happen with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now here again, I don't think that this is a specific order and we need to make too much of three specific noises. As if we're sitting down one night at dinner, you know, we all of a sudden we hear this cry of command. And so we're like, shh, shh, kids, shut up, shut up. You know, and we're like listening, we're listening. And then all of a sudden we hear the voice of an archangel. Oh, it's Michael. There he is. Quick, get your stuff. You know, and we're like grabbing our little end times bags. You know, we like it's got our Bible, it's got our robes and stuff, and and let's face it, it's got some of those pleasantries of life that we really kind of we're we're like we're happy with the idea of heaven, but we're afraid that we might not have them. So, like for Judy, it's going to be dark chocolate. For Jim, it's going to be bacon. You know, <laughs> so we're you've got those stuff ready, and you're just listening, you're waiting. You know, you kind of put your your hand to your ear, and you're listening around, waiting to hear that trumpet sound. You're like, I'm a man. I hope Jimmy's not practicing down the street there. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and nothing happens. Well, I I heard the cry of command. I heard the voice of the archangel, but I guess this is a false alarm. We can go back to eating dinner now because we didn't hear the trumpet of God. You see how silly this can be if we, if we make too much about the literary act of it all. We can miss the point, right? It, does, it, it may be three distinct noises. It may be one. Here's a crazy thing. What if the cry of a command is the voice of the archangel? 
and it's really only two instead of three, if you're waiting on the three, then you're going to miss out. You know? I mean, and so again, being sarcastic, but we can't read apocalyptic literature too literally. Okay? It's... The, the literal order and exact nature of the three distinct noises are not the issue. Instead, Paul is making it clear that this summons will be overwhelming and irresistible. It will not go unnoticed. People will hear, people will understand, and they will recognize that Christ has indeed returned. In fact... This noise will be so apparent and irresistible that Christ's triumphant announcement will result in the second thing, that that the dead will come out of their graves. Okay? The second half of verse 16 says that Christ's return, when Christ's return is announced, the dead in Christ will rise first. So eschatological event number two is the resurrection. So you've got the return of Christ, you've got the resurrection. He says, before anything else happens, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now here, we can start to make some separation because Paul's specific. He has the word first. And then in verse 17, he's going to go on and say, then. So there's a little bit of an order here. Okay? We can, we can make a little bit of this, but not too much, right? <clears throat> so Christ's return will be announced and the dead will rise and will join with the Lord in his triumphal procession. So that fear that that these who are in the grave will miss out on some of Christ's second coming, that's just not true. Christ will be announced, they will come up out of the graves, and they will join in that triumphal procession. Next, eschatological event number three is the rapture. Okay, Verse 17 says that then... We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, there are no literal problems here whatsoever. Though we can be thankful that this is the verse that really gave Kirk Cameron his comeback, right? So, I'm sorry, but if you've wasted a lot of money on movies and books pertaining to Kirk Cameron and his comeback, this this passage seems to argue against that order that they, they present. The order uh, would argue for this idea of a post-tribulation rapture. Now, I will dispel that. Don't worry. Uh, post means after, right? After the tribulation, uh, the Bible predicts a period of time, could be seven years, could be figurative, in which bad things will happen. Persecution will break out. It's going to be really hard for the church. And then Christ will return. Okay? So if you're really into the Left Behind series, they believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, which means that that before the tribulation, Christ is going to return. These people are going to disappear. There's going to be empty clothes and car wrecks and all this stuff everywhere. And then uh, the tribulation will happen, and then Christ will somehow return again. And, yeah. The problem is, LaHaye and Jenkins sort of left out the fact that all the graves are going to be empty and people are constantly falling into the graves as well. But anyway, uh, those who are left behind 
who are alive will be seized. They're going to be snatched up. They're going to be torn away or caught up together with the resurrected dead in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is going to be sudden. This is going to be abrupt. It's going to seem somewhat violent. That's the, what the language describes as they're caught up with the dead. But where is the literal clouds and air? Okay, this is another thing that people get stuck on. And when they read this passage, does this mean like physically, like this is a location that we're heading to? Like suddenly we're all going to start just kind of levitating up to the clouds, you know? We're all like, look at me. I'm walking on the... Oh, you're kind of doing this whole thing. I can tell you what I'm going to be doing, all right? This is going to be... Let's get to date me a little bit, but I'm going to be doing the Jordan. You know, I'm like tongue hanging out in the air and everything. It's going to be awesome. Uh, so we get up there to the proverbial clouds, right? We open the door to the proverbial clouds. And we're like, hey, look, there's Jesus. He's in the clouds, you know? And I'm going to be like, hey, look, Mom and Dad were right. It, thunder really is God and the angels bowling, you know? <laughs> feel a little saucy today. Um, but, but again, I'm exaggerating the, the point to... to just kind of bring us back to reality. We're, we're missing it when we're focusing on these, these details. That's not meant what it, it's not what it was intended to describe. I mean, Paul, he may be speaking of location. Yeah, I mean, we could, you know, transcend and somehow levitate up into the air and, and meet Christ up in the clouds. But this also could be symbolic. It could be figurative. I mean, if you look throughout the Bible, clouds are a symbol used to describe the immediate divine presence of God. Okay? So you think about the Exodus. How were they led by day? By a pillar of cloud. When God was getting ready to give Moses the law, it was a cloud that descended over Mount Sinai and caused the people to fear because they knew that the Lord was present. When God had given His instructions on the tabernacle and the tabernacle was completed, God showed that He was present with His people by descending as a cloud. We think about Ezekiel's visions. He had three different visions. Every time the divine presence of God was represented as a cloud. So it could be just that, that we find ourselves in the divine presence of God. The air is the same way. The air is the symbol for the, the, the spiritual dwelling place of, of spirits and also demons. I mean, think about the devil. What's a na- another name for him? Prince of the power of the air. So it could be simply that. We don't need to split hairs over the location. That's not ultimately what matters. So whether this is literal or symbolic, or here's something that may be crazy. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's both. That we're in the divine presence of God in, in the clouds. Or, you know, we're, in the, we're with our, the spiritual presence of, of God in the place where spiritual beings reside. I don't, know, I don't know. But the point is that we are to focus our attention on the fact that we are reunited gloriously with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is ultimately what matters. We're going to be in the presence of God. We will see Him and we will be like Him. As we sang earlier, when there is a day. That's really what it's all about. 
So eschatological event number four is this reunion, this reconciliation of believers with their Lord, this reuniting of the family of God from all time and all history. The greatest reason to anticipate the return of Christ is that we might get to be with him forever. We shall see him as he is, and then we will be like him. This sudden, momentary encounter will result in a glorious, everlasting fellowship. This is what really matters. We will be spiritually and physically transformed. The souls of the dead will be reunited with their glorious bodies and will dwell body and soul with the body and soul of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we will always be with the Lord. If this is not our hope, I don't know what is. That we can have everlasting fellowship with the Lord and Savior that we rebelled against. That we deserve His eternal condemnation. He offers us the opportunity of eternal fellowship with Him. And because this is not only my future hope, but the future hope of all believers, our our trusting in Christ's resurrection and our anticipating His return should motivate us, as Paul says in verse 18, to encourage one another with these words. These words were not intended for us to develop a personal exit strategy. Paul did not say, since verses 13 through 17 are going to happen, make every effort to discern the day or hour that it will occur. If Paul wanted to know them to know the time and place, he would have told them. But again, Christ didn't know, only the Father knew. If Paul knew, he would have clued us in. These words were not given so that we could formulate our exit strategy, but so that we could prepare so that we could prepare this Christian bomb shelter so that we could we could be able to to distinguish between Jimmy's trumpet and God's trumpet that's not the point these words are these words are not intended to be specific in time prophecy but instead were meant to comfort to encourage others in their faith as they wait for the day of the Lord Paul is writing the passage so that the Thessalonians might not grieve the loss of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as those who have no hope. That's the main point. Instead, he comforts them by reaffirming the truth of Scripture. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope because it guarantees that the dead will be raised. Jesus' return gives us hope because there will be an end to death and suffering, and sin. We will be together with Him eternally as the family of God, enjoying fellowship with the Lord forever. Therefore, we should take these words of truth to heart as a means of comfort, as a means of hope, as a means of great joy and encouragement as we speak them to one another so that even when times are hard, even though we experience grief and pain and loss in this world, even when we can have confidence in knowing that this is not all there is. Death is not the end. It does not have victory. It will not sting. This life is, is momentary. Sin and Satan will not win. This affliction that we experience, though it may continue our entire lives, is light and momentary 
when compared to the eternal weight of glory. That eternal reconciliation. That eternal fellowship that we can have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we have hope. How do we know? We know because our Redeemer lives. We know because our Savior will return. And so we wait with tears in our eyes as we experience pain and grief, but not without hope. And so we pray, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this life is not all there is. We thank you that you offer the promise of eternal, indestructible hope in Jesus Christ. God, I I know how easy it is for us to be focused on what's happening immediately in our situation. I know it's easy for us to function as if this world is all there is. And we're constantly battling against that temptation to make the most of this world, to make the most of this moment, because I'm going to die soon, and then that's it. But God, I pray that we would not fall into this despair, this utter hopelessness, but that we would realize you sent your son to die for our sin and you, he, you raised him on the third day so that we might have the hope of fellowship with you forever. So that we will not be overwhelmed as we wait. And though life is hard and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of loss and we're going to see loved ones die, we can grieve with the hope of knowing that for our brothers and sisters, this is not the end. This is a glorious thing. We should celebrate it. God, I pray that we would earnestly anticipate your return. That we would see the absolute necessity of your resurrection. And that we might be changed by it. God, there is such hope in Christ. He is our only hope. Lord, I pray for the hearts and minds of those here today that they might see it and believe it and be changed by it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.